Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you, part, of course, of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm Eric, your host, and today's episode is Russia Invades Ukraine 9. Oh, hi, Mars. Now, if you don't know the meme that I'm referring to, I can't help you. If you don't know what a high Mars is, I can help you because we're going to be talking about them a lot today. The HIMARS is the highly mobile artillery rocket system designed and deployed by the United States and sent to Ukraine in numbers, and it's starting to really matter in this war. So I'm going to give you a few sort of hot updates first, actually actually old updates at this point, because it's been a while since we've discussed Ukraine. The last time we talked, Severodonetsk was highly contested, and the Ukrainians' big gamble was paying off. The Russians were getting themselves chewed up and expending tons and tons of manpower and logistical resources to try to take this fairly small town for the political win of saying that they captured the rest of the Luhansk Oblast. And it fell. Um, Lysychansk was supposed to be round two of this, where the Russians would go, oh, great, we got Severodonetsk but we got to do this all over again in an even tougher town where there's a river between us and Lysychansk and it's elevated and it's well defended and it doesn't, you know, the Ukrainians don't have to cross the bridge, we do. That would have probably been the Kobani moment for the Russians had it happened. Those who don't remember, Kobani was maybe 2016? I'd have to look it up at this point, but Kobani was when ISIS was pushing the Kurds back to the border with Turkey. At Kobani, the Kurds had gotten a bunch of reinforcements. They doubled down. They won that battle. They won it big, and they turned it around and pushed ISIS back. So for those who think that this war can't start going the other direction, it totally can. And given how chewed up the Russians got from Severodonetsk, I thought that Lysychansk would have been the Kobani. But it turns out the Ukrainian kind of middle commanders were outdueled by the Russian middle commanders for once. And the Russians managed to essentially surround Lysychansk from the south. They crossed the river. They managed to cross the river elsewhere, way down in Papanza. And we've been talking about Papanza. 
but they managed to cross the river way down south and work their way up to threaten Lysychansk and essentially cut Lysychansk off so the Ukrainians decide to retreat rather than defend it. Probably the right move long term. You don't want your frontline troops totally surrounded and destroyed. But it meant that the Russians had the opportunity to declare victory and take a breath rather than spend the rest of the summer trying to fight for this one damn town. So if you're rooting for Ukraine, which you should be, it was quite a setback, but it was really the first setback for the Ukrainians in quite a while. The Russians took Lysychansk and Severodonetsk, and they took the area in front of it. There is now a new defensive line. We talked about that backup defensive line in Seversk and Bakhmut. I'll be talking about all that in a second, but the Russians have been pretty slow since then. They've not been able to break through Bakhmut and Seversk. They've not been able to break out of Donetsk City. They've held Donetsk City since the 24th of February, and the Ukrainians are holding it. And Russia appears to have deployed nearly 100% of its conventional combat capabilities to Ukraine, and it's still getting clobbered. You know, they have some basic defense stuff back home, but they could not launch an offensive anywhere else if they wanted to. So if, for example, the Chechnyans decided to get spicy, the Russians wouldn't be able to do much about it. Right now, they're trying to recruit, quote, volunteer regiments to deploy to Ukraine to relieve Russian troops. These would be low quality, so their usefulness would be to hang tight in certain areas and try to pin down Ukrainian units. Keep Ukrainian units from just being able to walk away, because if you walk away, even the worst troops can just keep advancing. So they're not useless, but not super useful. They would be the kinds of things where the Ukrainians would send their National Guard-type units or their new volunteers rather than their hardened troops. And remember, the Ukrainians do outnumber the Russians. The only reason the Russians have been able to really advance at all is due to their gun advantage. It's not even so much a technology advantage. It's just a sheer mass of guns. And when I say guns, I mean artillery. I also mean tanks and planes. They've just got more of the hardware than the Ukrainians by a lot. And in the words of somebody, quantity has a quality all of its own. It's always been the Russian war motto. It's just send more stuff than the other guys have, and you'll eventually figure it out. The Russians have tried to do that to the Ukrainians. It turns out the Ukrainians are willing to put more people out there, and the West is supplying them with as much small you know, small arms as they need. And so there's a lot of Ukrainians and they're really angry. And so even with a disadvantage in tanks, in planes and etc., the West has been doing a decent job of arming them with the stuff that they need to hold out, right? So this is counter battery radar so that their artillery can shoot the Russian artillery. It's been drones, the javelins, it's been air defense missile batteries, stuff like that. Stuff that has what Americans might call a disproportionate or asymmetric, rather, advantage. A lot of asymmetric warfare weaponry for a force with less hardware to be able to threaten a force with more hardware. So the state of the game right now is not a ton of territory has changed since the fall of Lysychansk. Again, the Ukrainians fell back to the second of three highly defensible urban lines in the Donetsk Oblast with Seversk and Bakhmut, the big towns there. Bakhmut is under a lot of pressure. The Russians are trying to surround it, so not so far to no avail. Other attempts by the Russians to advance elsewhere, they're every now and then making some progress, but they're not getting far. So the Russians are thinking about trying to attack those two downs directly. They're doing a lot of reconnaissance in force, but they're also trying to continue the end around from Izian towards Slovyansk to try to create a pocket that can be cut off. 
So far, it's really not working. And it looks like Russia might be deprioritizing that angle from Izium as of July 31st. One of the things to keep in mind as we talk about the high Mars and more of the big picture is that the Ukrainians are not trying to win the territory game in the East right now. What they're trying to do is wear the Russians out as quickly as possible. Grind them down. So defense is a lot easier than offense. The Ukrainians don't want to launch major counteroffensives in the East where the Russians are highly concentrated. They'll do partial counteroffensives when the Russians are trying to get settled to interrupt them. But they're not trying to take a bunch of territory there. That would be silly. Because what they need is for the Russians to give up and withdraw, or at least get ground down so much that later the Ukrainians can take this territory back. It doesn't make sense for the Ukrainians to fight to the last man to hold on to every inch of territory. They put the Russians in a position where the Russians have to fight to the last man to gain each inch of territory. And again, the Ukrainians have the advantage of being on defense in an area that they know, you know, in territory that they know well, and the Russians have to run into these wood chippers in order to try to take territory. That is the Ukrainian strategy. It's working fairly well. But the way that the Russians had an advantage for quite a while during this phase two was by using their massive artillery advantage to keep the Ukrainians from being comfortably dug in to keep the Ukrainians from turning every town into a wood chipper and being able to hang out as long as they want, being able to resupply easily, stuff like that. A lot of artillery could do some damage. A lot of artillery, most importantly, can destroy cover. It can keep you from being able to sleep, right? So if your town that you're trying to defend is getting pounded by artillery 24 hours a day, you get tired, quite tired. It keeps you from being able to, again, create that defensive network. And so what the Russians were doing to advance was they just focused thousands and thousands of artillery pieces in a single area and blow it to hell for days or weeks at a time and then send the Wagner group to do their horrible thing. And it's how the Russians were able to advance without the entire thing being just a complete meat grinder for Russian troops. And so the Ukrainians needed some help in order to try to change that calculus. And who boy, did they get it. Oh, hi, Mars. Guess what's arrived? So, as we mentioned before, the HIMARS is the highly mobile artillery rocket system. It's super accurate. It doesn't create these big earth-rattling shakes that tube artillery does, so it's hard to strike back because a lot of counter-battery radar and such uses seismic shocks from those big tube artilleries that launch stuff by literally exploding, right? It's gunpowder, right? Whereas these rockets, they shoot themselves. They have chemical propulsion. So you don't make a lot of noise. They're very easy to move, right? Highly mobile. And they're super accurate because they're shooting these rockets that are literally GPS targeted. So they're pretty cool and they're pretty scary and they've got very long range. Ukraine originally got eight of them. This doesn't seem like a ton. Remember, Russia literally has thousands and thousands of pieces of tube artillery. But Ukraine has a lot of ammo and they're getting 10 more, up to 18. These HIMARS systems pair very well with the aerial intelligence from US drones and planes, satellite intelligence, and German counter-battery radar for a lot of precise strikes. Turns out you don't need nearly as much artillery if you're able to hit your target every single time and you know what targets to hit thanks to intelligence. Again, we're looking at a highly asymmetric form of warfare where technology, good tactics, is able to seriously threaten a whole lot more hardware. So 
the way that these work is because they're GPS targeted, you get a coordinate from intelligence, literally a GPS coordinate, and then you dial in the GPS coordinate and the rockets go, they fire and then they go boom. Now, they can be anti-air batteries can contest them, so they won't hit their target every single time. And if the target's moving, it won't get hit every single time. But it's a lot better than trying to throw a bunch of tube artillery when you don't quite know what you're shooting at because you don't have great intelligence. And that's the Russians. So the Russian tube artillery, it's just not that great. Again, they make up for it in numbers. If that tube artillery fires on you and it does anything but hit you in the first couple times, you can pick up and move. So the Ukrainians are able to move. If they stay nimble, they stay mobile. The tube artillery is a major problem, but it's not immediately deadly. Again, Russian artillery is good for wearing people out and keeping them from positioning where they want to. And this is good, but it takes a long time and it's slow. So, however, your artillery tube can get sniped at any point, right? And in particular, it can get sniped from these HIMARS systems. It's scary to be an artillery soldier right now. It used to be quite safe, right? For months, it was quite safe. You just sit on the back lines, you throw artillery and you hang out. The Ukrainians are targeting select Russian artillery tubes. Why? Because Russian troops love to chat. They spread rumors and they know if their tube is creating a lot of noise, especially if it's important, there's a risk of being blown up. So they're scared. But counterfire against Russian tube artillery, right? You have to destroy literally thousands of them to have an impact. So if you've only got eight HIMARS systems and they could fire eight rockets at a time, they're pretty cool. But if you've only got eight, going after individual tubes of Russian artillery doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? But what do those tubes need to keep firing? They need ammo. They need a lot of it, like a lot of it. And where does that ammo come from? It comes from Russia. And then it goes through rail depots. It goes into ammo dumps. It goes into centralized places, right? Because you can't have trucks, trucks just driving single pieces of ammunition at a time. So it's collected, it's stored, right? You send some stuff near the front lines and then you split it up. So that's what the Ukrainians are doing. They're targeting ammo depots really, really well. They've literally been targeting dozens of them. And so the Russians are trying to load or unload their artillery ammo and boom, massive explosion. Because literally a bunch of bombs have been hit. Not that conventional artillery is a bomb, but it's attached to a bomb because the bomb blows up in order to get the artillery going. Again, it's like a bullet. Right, it's got a bunch of gunpowder. So a bunch of gunpowder explodes. Really, really tough stuff. And so part of what the Russians are doing to try to counter this is they're literally moving their ammo dumps way back and they're trying to ship smaller amounts of artillery ammunition at a time from a much longer distance in individual trucks, which they've been short of anyway because of the first phase of the war. And so those artillery guns are starting to go quiet. We don't just know this because of Ukrainian reporting or propaganda. We literally know this from NASA satellites, which show hot spots when things catch fire from these guns firing. And we know it from seismic data. There's fewer artillery guns going off. So explains Mike Martin, a fellow with the Department of War Studies at King's College London, quote, Judging by the size of those fires, their brigade, divisional, and core level supply dumps, which are predominantly fuel and ammunition, end quote. To preserve what's left of their ammo, the Russians are pulling back these supply dumps a lot farther. So Martin wrote, quote, this has one very simple effect. The Russians now have to transport all the supplies, say 100 kilometers rather than 30 kilometers. And what this all means is that in the Severodonetsk phase of the war, sorry, that was the end of the quote, um, Russians had this medium term advantage because they could just grind down the Ukrainians with tons and tons of, of artillery. 
This advantage dwindles by the day as ammo gets harder and harder to move towards the artillery itself. This gives the Ukrainian space to build and hold more defense, making it harder for the Russians to successfully attack, and it makes it easier for the, Ru uh, the Ukrainians to build up foreign attacks, say, in the south, which we'll talk about in a moment. Even more HIMARS, like let's say the Ukrainians had a hundred of these HIMARS, the war would be over. The problem is the United States only has so many, it's not going to send them all to Ukraine. So 18 is going to end up being the number, but it's still going to be twice as effective, more than twice as effective as what they have right now. So with those HIMARS, Ukrainians are slowing down the Russians dramatically, and they're not eating it as hard as they would have been. The ISW, the Institute for the Study of War, believes that the Russians will not take any more major urban centers at this point, period. The Russians are probably, they're either delusional or they're thinking that they want to sort of like stabilize these lines, get these fake referendums done so that they can say, okay, Donetsk, Luhansk, and the South, those are ours. Too bad. If you attack us, we'll nuke you, which is the thing that they'll try to do. Be like, hey, they voted to join Russia. If you attack us, we'll nuke you. And who knows if that's a bluff? It's probably a bluff, but it's a little scary when it's a bluff. So they're just trying to keep the Ukrainians from being able to majorly counterattack. But the Ukrainians are thinking about majorly counterattacking. Counter so the Ukrainians are stacking troops down near the Kursan Oblast, which is way in the south. It's the one that kind of is Crimea to Odessa. And there's the town of Kursan, which sits on a river. There's lots of talk, lots I've been reading about what seems to be the inevitability at this point of Ukraine taking back Kursan. And I don't know if it's a true one way or the other. But the Russians are definitely scared. They recently started redeploying 25,000 troops from Donbass to the south, which is a ton. And they want to play defense there. They want to keep the Ukrainians from taking Kherson back. And, you know, why now? Well, one, the Ukrainians have been able to put troops down there because they've had time. They've been able to train troops. They've been able to get them armed from Western supplies. They've got a lot of fresh people that they've been recruiting that have been getting trained. They're under a lot less pressure in Donbass than they used to be, in part because of the HIMARS system. And, and if they could, you know, they're trying to go attack Kursan and, and take it back and even maybe Melitopol. Uh, Melitopol is the, at this point, the big kind of central transport network hub for the Russians, for their ground lines of communication and the trains that they use to move stuff to the front lines. So people are talking about them maybe taking Melitopol, and the Russians are trying really hard to defend this. They're digging trenches, they're building defensive networks, but the Ukrainians have the opportunity to do this because the Russians have been ground down and they slowed down in the east. So the Ukrainians have been repositioning. The Russians are trying to counter reposition to get troops there. But why might the Ukrainians possibly, not inevitably, but possibly have an advantage? Well, one. Ukraine is using those HIMARS to hit ammo dumps, bridges, roads, rail networks, trains themselves on the south side of the river Dnipro. That river is south of Kherson. And so if you hit all these bridges and these railways and such, what you do is you make it very, very difficult to get more stuff to Kherson, to get more ammunition, reinforcements, etc. So the idea is to logistically isolate the Russian units that are there so that they can't get resupplied. And if the Russian units are pretty much isolated across that river, it's not quite as good as being surrounded, but it's pretty bad. It's fighting from an island and you're going to lose. You're going to get worn out because you're going to run out of stuff. And the Ukrainians have hit a lot of targets so far, like maybe 50 major ones kind of thing or more. 
There's now no bridge to Kursan from the south. And while the Russians are trying to rebuilding it, and they're putting up these kind of radar shields to try to prevent the rockets and missiles from coming in on it, the Ukrainians can probably hit it again, especially as they get closer. Trains have been hit, ammo depots, logistics centers, command and control centers, centers with Russian leaders in them. The Ukrainians even hit the like Russian naval command center in Crimea on Russia's Navy Day just to let everybody know nowhere is safe. And that's the message the Ukrainians are trying to send to Russian troops, right? The center got hit while it was being televised, right? The Ukrainians are trying to let the Russians know you're not safe. And that's going to change the calculus of these Russian troops, right? These Russian troops aren't going to be as confident as they were in the sort of like early mid phase two where they could just play artillery all day. If the Ukrainians do their job well, you're going to have a bunch of quite frightened Russian soldiers in the trenches north of Kurosan with very little in the way of reinforcement and resupply. So the battle for Kurosan seems to be coming. Maybe it's a feint. Maybe the Ukrainians will cancel it, but it seems to be coming and it will be tough. But it really seems like Ukraine is going to go for it. And it would be a massive victory if they snagged it. They would disrupt Russia's ability to have a referendum, a fake referendum in Kurosan. They would potentially wipe out a number of Russian BTGs. It would be a massive morale blow for the rest of the Russian army, a huge morale boon for the Ukrainians. They're probably more like, like, it's the kind of thing where momentum really, really matters in these wars. If the Russians are moving at a snail's pace in the east and the Ukrainians can move much faster in the south, right? Once they take Kursan, they're holding a fortified city from the correct side of a river. What the heck are the Russians going to do to take that? They won't be able to. So the Ukrainians will be able to reposition troops, possibly go after Melitopol, who knows from there, and the Russians will be on the defensive. And the Russians aren't good at fighting on the defensive, except when it's their own territory, because just getting blasted at is not fun. And again, the Russians are only effective when they're able to just blast someone the bunch of artillery and then go in after they've been beaten to hell, especially spearpointed by the Wagner group. So that's the other advantage the Russians have had is they've gotten to sort of pick their battles, like pick where they are making their pushes. And that's been the problem with the Ukrainian strategy It's been the problem with not enough counterattacks is the Russians get to select where they put their best troops. But if the Ukrainians are attacking on all fronts in the south, you're going to have a lot of Russian troops break and run. This is where those morale problems are really going to kill the Russians. And so we don't know that it's going to happen, but it really could. That's kind of exciting. A lot of people are going to die, but that's already true in this war. And if the Ukrainians can score a major victory in the battle for Kurosan, the Russians look like they're going to be in a lot of trouble, especially because they're committing so many troops to it, right? Again, it means like even more Russian troops might be destroyed captured, those units will be rendered ineffective, combat ineffective, and it's going to be hard to escape. Now, the Russians will find ways to get some of them out, but those units will be effectively neutralized, it looks like. A few closing points there, because the future looks really interesting. In Kharkiv, Russia actually seems to be trying to advance rather than just hold, which I think is crazy. They can't sustain, like, they can't sustain an offensive in Donbass and Kharkiv while trying to defend against the Ukrainians in the south. I don't know why they would do that other than to try to pressure the Ukrainians or, or something. We're keeping an eye on it, but I don't quite know what's going on there. What's also really interesting is the United States is talking about sending F-16s, finally. And I don't know why it was infeasible before, but it's suddenly feasible. But it'd be really interesting. And we already talked about this in, I think, episode four, 
maybe three, my kingdom for a plane. But it would be a big deal. And it's definitely the case that the Ukrainians need more air support for serious battles. That lack of air support is really killing them. The U.S. jets have some serious defensive capability. So they're far from invulnerable, those F-16s. They're a little old at this point. If you've seen if you've seen the new Top Gun movie, you see what those Generation 5 jets are doing. But the Russians don't have a ton of those. So it'd be a lot of older MiGs versus F-16s. These are dogfights. These are real dogfights. So, but they're still highly meaningful defensive capabilities. So you have survivability if you're making airstrikes. U.S. jets could fire missiles at static ground targets like ammo depots and artillery batteries from a distance, just as Russian jets do now. So it'd be a lot like having those HIMARS systems. And of course, they could threaten Russian jets, make it harder for Russian jets to fire. And so the Russian Air Force has not shown a lot of appetite for eating it. The F-16s would pressure these Russian jets to be even more conservative, which means that the army, the Russian army is going to eat it more because they'll have, they'll lack that air support or have less air support. It's probably not going to happen fast, but it might happen. And that's kind of exciting. That could be a major turning point in the war as well, in addition to what the HIMARSes have done. Because make no mistake, the HIMARSes are a major turning point in this war. So, Finally, what's reconsiders totally amateur assessment of force balance based on looking at a bunch of open source intelligence? Keep in mind, we are intentionally left in the dark about what forces the Ukrainians can bring to bear and where, because you don't want to publish that stuff when you're rooting for the team. You want that to be a secret. You want to know, you want as much about the Russians as possible to be public and as little about the Ukrainians as possible to be public. So here's my guess. Look, it clearly looks like in some ways the forces you know, the forces are somewhat balanced. Nobody's making serious headway. Russia is, again, slowly advancing in the Donbass, in the Donetsk Oblast, but it seems totally unable to manage a breakthrough, even with all that artillery, which means net, fairly balanced force over there. The Russians aren't getting clobbered. I mean, they are, but it's not a just a meat grinder. The Russians fail in most of their assaults. Do they fail after getting totally blown to pieces? Probably not. Those troops do not tend to want to just like run into, this is not Iran in 1988. They're not just going to like run at machine gun nests and get themselves killed. So the Russians probably aren't just being totally destroyed by this, which means that, you know, they're probing and probing and then sometimes they make advances. Makes me think that they're somewhat well balanced. But if Russia is advancing, does that mean that the Russians have any force advantage in the East? Not necessarily. Honestly, we don't have much of a signal there about the long-term capabilities of both of these armies right now. We don't know their logistical situation. We don't know their morale situation. We don't know how exhausted they are. We don't know how many troops they have in reserve. And again, I mentioned the Ukrainians are focusing on defense no matter what. And because you can inflict more casualties and sustain fewer. Because you have fewer offensive weapons, your defensive weapons are really important. Your light weapons serve well on defense, like javelins, but they don't serve well on offense. Like you don't go running into, like running around forward with javelins. You hide with javelins and you shoot tanks as they go by. And again, the Ukrainians know their territory better. Being on defense sometimes means giving up territory when the enemy is able to assemble a high concentration of offense. So... Again, it probably means that both sides are taking a lot of casualties. We know Zelensky talked about during the real heat of the Severodonetsk and Lysychansk battle. Zelensky was talking about 200 to 500 casualties a day. So three times as many as that casualties. It's probably lower right now. 
don't know what it's like for the Russians. We know that every now and then, like a Russian battalion or something just gets absolutely it's butt kicked, but we don't know what's happening to the Ukrainians ones. But again, the Ukrainians probably have a slightly better long-term ability to keep fighting, even just due to morale, a willingness to keep fighting, a willingness to keep going. The Russians probably have significantly more ammunition and the Ukraine is going to depend significantly on the West to continue supplying it. It looks like the Americans will do so. It's not clear whether the other NATO allies are going to step up as big. If Ukraine does start facing an ammunition or logistics crunch due to a lack of Western support, they'll be in trouble. And that's probably what the Russians are banking on at this point. I think the Russians don't think they're going to be able to win a knockdown dragout war with the Ukrainians that are indefinitely supplied by the West. But I think from what I'm reading, it's likely the Russians are trying to sort of win as much as possible uh, before the winter, because the winter changes two things. One, makes it much harder to have like mobile warfare. It makes it much harder to hang out outside because it's cold. Remember the Russians started this war in February? Around October, November, it's getting it really, really cold again. And the Russians, ironically enough, are not great at keeping the troops warm. Somehow, Russia being defeated by General Winter? I don't get it, man. But that's incompetence and, and graft for you um, and hubris. But the Russians are know that nobody will be able to make major advances in the winter, probably. Certainly not the spring, because it'd be a mud field. And everyone's under this time pressure. The Ukrainians, it's probably, to some extent, it's money. They're asking for debt forgiveness, which means they'll default, but they're continuing to get aid. You know, but they're just a lot poorer than Russia. They just don't have as much money to bring to bear. They could run out of ammunition. They know that their Western support's not going to last forever. The Russians aren't as transparent about their problems, but they've got major economic problems right now. They've got morale problems. They might have major logistical problems, but it seems what they're doing is like literally wearing out their humans and their humans might be the first thing to break down. All these systems, all these war machines are only as strong as their weakest part. And what is going to be the thing that breaks first for each of these sides? Is it money? Is it morale? Is it logistics? Is it people? Is it literally ammunition? We don't know. We just don't know because there's so many factors still in play. So both sides are looking for a decisive moment in order to cause that break. The Russians are hoping to like take and hold territory and get these referenda done and then just threaten to nuke the hell out of any counterattack and say nya nya and dare them. The Russians are also hoping that winter allows them to blackmail the West by saying, well, no gas for you. And they're hoping to, at least they're hoping that threat will work out to try to get the West to try to, to pressure Ukraine to make a deal with Russia before the winter comes around, because it's possible that the Russians are able to withstand a winter where they're not selling much gas. It's possible they're not. It's possible the Europeans can figure out how to get enough gas in that time. It's possible they can't. Like, will you literally have freezing to death Europeans? Don't know. There's a lot of brinksmanship. There's a lot of, like, gambling there's a lot of negotiating and threatening with incomplete information. It's a very interesting space right now. If the Ukrainians can get a breakthrough in Kherson, if the Ukrainians can, after that, possibly counterattack elsewhere and get their Kobani moment, it's game over for the Russians. It's going to be really bad. But at this point, the fog of war is very thick. We don't know how many troops the Russians are losing. We don't know how much of their ammunition is dried up. You know, we don't know how 
quickly the Russians and Ukrainians are breaking down. But common assessments such as the ISW are saying that Russia won't be able to sustain, they won't be able to take Donetsk. They won't be able to take the whole thing. Not if they're trying to hold Kharkiv and Kursan at the same time. Something's got to give. And with these HIMARSs coming in, with this technology coming in from the West, the Ukrainians look like they might be ready to make their decisive move. We'll keep our eyes on it. I'm looking forward, I think, to the Battle of Kursan. And that's it for now. So had some new patrons lately. Thank you guys so much. It's great, great. Just like knowing that, you know, you support the show means the world to me. If you are interested in supporting us and if you want to support us a little more generously, there's cool stuff, including a signed now eight-year-old book by me called Wedged. In addition to some other cool stuff, you can go to patreon.com slash reconsider. You can sign up there. If you're hearing this, but you don't, but you somehow don't know how to subscribe to a podcast, Spotify, App, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts or whatever, a Stitcher, all that good stuff. We're everywhere. If you want to get alerted, if you want to get show notes, go to reconsidermedia.com or you can go to the website and sign up for the mailing list. Like 99% of my emails are just, hey, here's the next episode and here are the show notes. So I know a lot of people like being subscribed to that so they can read the show notes, see some of the citations. But with that, my dear listeners, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.